and it is not, repeat not, Christmassy. You're still listening. This is our final transmission. Blessed Kwanzaa, bright Yule, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas. Jamie Carruthers, how are you doing today? I'm having a great day. It's uh, Christmas Day right now. We've uh, unwrapped our presents. Mm-hmm. I got a luxury leg lamp. I didn't get a luxury leg lamp, and I'm fucking furious about it, frankly. <laughs> You'd been dropping hints all year. What is going on? Absolutely. Saved up all the coupons from the from the magazine. I can't really yep. remember what happens in the Christmas story, but I'm... I think it's something like that. I haven't got my Christmas bonus yet, but I think my boss is going to come around and hand deliver it later on. That seems like a thing that your boss would do. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, a very a very Herzog Christmas, Jamie. I hope you're having a spectacular day. I hope all the love and light of the universe flows into every pore of your body and you have the greatest Christmas of your life. Thanks, mate. I hope you have a fine day too. Thank you. Don't worry. It's in hand. I'm going to be fine. So what the hell are we talking about today? So it's Christmas, right? And I thought, I didn't think anything. We we talked for fucking ages about what we could possibly cover on an episode that's coming out on Christmas Day, because that's how the schedule fell. Yeah. Um, and we talked about a number of different things that we might do in the future. But for today, we're going to talk about Bob Clark's 1974 slasher inception piece black christmas that's a great way to think of it slasher inception hell yeah black christmas now i am gonna make no bones about this i absolutely love this film front to back one of my favorite slashers my favorite christmas horror movie uh it's very near the top of a lot of my very niche lists uh this is a canadian film which again just So, so Canadian. So spectacularly Canadian. I cannot tell you how much joy the Canadian-ness of this film brings me. Yeah, despite all of the uh, uh, stars and stripes that they hang up around the police station, despite what they'll have you believe, the aboots don't lie. These aboots are made for walking. I I watched a documentary about this um, movie, and the the way they justified it, it's really obvious why it's there. It's because nobody at the time wanted to have anything to do with Canadian cinema. It wasn't getting any money. It wasn't on the national stage. The industry was really small. So they made everything look and feel like America, mainly because of a genuine Canadian love of you know, all things American, including Hollywood, but also, and this quote stuck with me, all the, all the American flags and all the kind of things they do to make this movie seem American is an act of classic Canadian low (laughs) self-esteem, which I think is great. Yeah. And it speaks to the humility of the movie. You know, you're going to have to fucking rein me in on my, my positive rants on this film, but it is, it is a true understated Canadian masterpiece in my opinion. So um, what are your early, early thoughts? I mean, I, as you well know, I'm not a big Christmas film man. No. Especially Christmas horror. I think like a lot of it is sort of cash in crap. Yeah, 100%. Like designed to make a book over the Christmas holidays or whatever. And mm-hmm. I just don't really, I just don't really go for that sort of thing. Um, but this is not that. This feels like it's a movie with a purpose. It feels like. There's a reason that they set it over Christmas because then you can have people coming and going and not quite know where everyone is or is ever, is meant to be and stuff like that. And that's that's really important to this film. And I think, obviously, 
ultimately this film inspired an, an entire genre. This film is like, I would consider it the the stopgap between like the the giallo um, that were happening in the late 60s, early 70s and, and beyond coming out of Italy and then the, the traditional American slasher. This is the thing that sort of bridges that gap, which I think is coming from um, like an American attempt at making a giallo. Mm-hmm. which we've seen a few times um, from different people as well. Like De Palma is a big giallo guy and uses a lot of giallo tropes and uh, visual style in his movies. But when you when you sort of transfer that very, very Italian sensibility through an, an American or Canadian lens, then you end up with something that's really, really different and feels really, really new. Obviously not in 2023 because we live in the future and everything's flying cars and hoverboards. But... <laughs> In 1974, this is like, it's a whole different thing. And it's obviously would go on to inspire thousands upon thousands of terrible fucking slasher films, but also some really fucking good ones. Um, But this is also, in its own right, a good film. (laughs) The end. It looked like like it kind of hurt you to admit that it was a good film at the end there. But I couldn't agree more. It does so much for this genre and it does so many surprising and brave things there's a lot of facts about this film that just don't seem to be widely known i mean i'm not going to be the boring trumpet guy like nobody knows about black christmas because it is a genre classic and and lots of people love it and for very good reasons so we're gonna we're gonna dig into that a little bit in this episode and you know reader beware this is uh this is absolutely riddled with fascinating facts this episode so Strap your ass into a rocking chair, wrap your face in plastic, and get yourself ready for a Christmas pummeling like you've never had before. You're going to be penetrated with unicorn horns, uh, you're going to get (laughs) hooked through the face, and you're going to have a Christmas like none you've ever had before. Jamie, should we take a break? Sure. I'm just going to nip over to my bookshelf and grab the bottle of sherry that's hiding in one of the books, just for a quick swig under B for booze, and then we'll be right back. Whoa, holy shit. I guess that's why they call it Phantom Power. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Sam. A little Robin told me that you've got something special out for Christmas. Is that true? A little red-breasted, loose-lipped Robin has been talking to you. Yeah. It flew in my window, landed on my shoulder, and said, Sam's released a special Christmas uh, record, 7-inch, with some amazing artwork and two great, great songs on it. That's good work from the Robin, uh, not paying that Robin enough. Yes, <laughs> I put out a 7-inch this festive season. Uh, it's out on Red Scare Industries. It's called Mistletoe Pier, and it has two very Christmassy, holiday-themed, festive jams uh, for your listening pleasure. You can pick it up uh, in the UK on my web store. You can pick it up from redscare.net. You can get it on Bandcamp for 2 bucks, and you can stream it everywhere you stream music. It's really good. I recommend that you do it. I heard the songs back in, I don't know, was it like August or something when you first recorded them? And I was yeah, like... Yeah, recorded in June, sent them straight to you. Yeah. And I was like, this is amazing. But now I can listen to like all the plebs and it just sounds, it sounds even better. It's seasonally appropriate. It's wonderful. You'd probably still enjoy it in March, but yeah. get on it now. I mean, the only thing that makes it a Christmas song is saying Christmas in the first line. Uh, <laughs> the rest of it is just my usual... You know, misery. So if you enjoy misery, get stuck in. 
Is Mistletoe Pier a real place? No, absolutely not. The songs were written uh, and inspired by Chroma Pier, okay. uh, which is less romantic sounding. Yeah, so it's a fiction. I've been lied to once again by fucking Sam Rousseau. My gift to you this festive season, a whole pack of lies. Uh, enjoy yourself. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Uh, and yeah, listen to it. It's really good. It's really, really good. Thanks. And back to the show. All right, we're back. So, we are back. Black Christmas. As we said, 1974, the world is a different place. We're in Canada, yeah. which may as well be a different planet at this point. Canada's still kind of a young country artistically in a lot of ways. It's just starting to peek its head over the parapets and, and peer over into America and gain some confidence in its uh, artistic output. And um, yeah, like we said, laughable that you would even try to pretend this movie isn't Canadian. It has shit snow. It has freezing cold weather. It has the University of Toronto about six times. <laughs> it has like uh, very Canadian sounding actors who are trying to varying degrees to conceal their Canadian accents, which is a real shame. It's great when it yeah. breaks through. And it has ice hockey. So <laughs> like what more do you need? It's, it's, it's Canadian as maple syrup and we love it for it. The Canadianness is so joyful. Yeah. Like every time that they sort of sneak in an accidental bit of Canadianosity, it's just yeah. like, it's just a real hoot, a real a boot a hoot. <laughs> it would be so great if they'd had, had lent into it a little bit more and just made it a Canadian slasher, a Toronto slasher. That's how I see it. You know, I just yeah. put my thumb over those American flags and uh and and treat it like it's set in canada because there's there's no actual you know the sense of place is a little bit muddy it's it's a place called bedford i if i have to i'm putting it in the northernmost tip above buffalo like right on the canadian yeah. border but is it I, called you know, bedford like to to reference bedford falls bedford falls yeah i mean i think so i don't i haven't found it said explicitly but that would be uh it's probably not bedford england <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and fingers crossed it's Bedford Falls because I like that tip of the hat. I think that's cool. Why don't you drop a drop a synop? All right, synop. Christmas period in a sorority house in the large town, small city of Bedford, in the United States of America, not Canada. Uh, the <laughs> occupants of this sorority house that are still home for the holidays at this point are having a party, and they're deciding what they're going to do over the Christmas period um, when. Slowly but surely, uh, an evil presence begins to descend upon the house and slowly take their lives one by one um, in classic slasher fashion. That is essentially the entire plot. The, the trick of Black Christmas is that we don't know who the killer is for a considerable part of the movie. It's a bit of a whodunit type situation. And the, the setting, you know, being at Christmas, being a very cold, wintry movie, uh, is absolutely, you know, riddled with Christmas iconography and imagery from front to back and music. Uh, so it, it, it's very overtly and very deliberately, uh, heavily Christmas-themed horror movie. So simple premise for a simple movie. Uh, is it fair to say that one of the strengths of this film is that it's incredibly basic in its plotting and, and largely in its execution? Yeah, I think so. I think like one of the magic things about Black Christmas is that the characters are people. Yeah. So like you can have this very basic plot when you when the stuff that's happening in between the killings um and to ramp up that tension is real people in in situations that you sort of recognize and that have acted fairly well for what is essentially 
mid seventies horror movie that no one thought was going to do anything. Yeah, between four and six hundred thousand dollar budget, uh, all funded by weird Canadian grants that were emerging at the time, um, yeah. and and helmed by a guy with a, a deep love of horror, but you know, a strange director. You know, Bob Clark has a real mixed catalogue. I have a lot of respect for him, but this is the guy that made Porky's and the guy that made A Christmas Story, and this is Black Christmas. So, yeah, I mean, how do you feel about Bob Clark broadly slash in the context of this film? I, I mean, I think he's a great director. I think he's mm. got a really strong voice. I think he makes films that look muddy but on purpose, but it's like a yeah. there's a real murky vibe there. Obviously, we talked on the Patreon episode last week mm -hmm. about um, A Christmas Story and how you don't like it. And yeah. I, th I find that really strange when I know that you like this movie because the, the tone, besides the murdering, mm. is very similar. The, the humor's the same. It's shot in a very similar way. Obviously... Bob Clark has, I'm, I'm not going to say a fairly singular vision, but like has a has a distinct style that carries yep. through to all of his other films, even like Porky's, which is obviously a bit more madcap than both of those things. <laughs> but <laughs> madcap is one way to, to look at Porky's. That's very forgiving. <laughs> Porky's is so bad now. Like watching Porky's now is, is so uncomfortable. The less Any... we talk about Porky's, the safer we'll be. Any 80s sex comedy is yeah. is so challenging in, in the dude, world that we live in now. Porky's and Revenge of the Nerds are so oh. bad. Yeah. So bad. Like, a lot of those movies still get a pass somehow. Porky's, I just fucking, woof. I leave the room. <laughs> I don't, yeah. feel like I'm going to get cancelled just watching it. Yeah, savage. I don't like uh, A Christmas Story, and for all the reasons you just explained. For me... This is all of Bob Clark's talents turned up to a thousand. And A Christmas Story, the humor doesn't hit for me really as at all. I mean, a little bit here and there. I don't like how it looks. I don't like a faded, grainy, muted Christmas movie with lots of dull reds and like weird, just like, I don't know, like crusty old, junky aesthetic. It's not heartwarming enough for me for a Christmas movie. I, I go to Christmas movies for a very specific fix and it doesn't doesn't deliver for me on any level. Whereas Black Christmas, at the polar opposite end of the spectrum, does everything I want in a Christmas horror movie. Okay. Fair enough. I'll revisit I, I mean, it, I'll give it another try, but I was so disappointed. The one time I watched it, I felt uh, I'd been ripped off. It's just really good and really wholesome and really... It's one of my favourite, I guess, Christmas movies. I really like it. Look at you struggling wrong. to admit that you have a favorite Christmas movie. <laughs> it's just, it's it's fun. I think in America, it is like a film that everyone grew up with, but it never really made it over here. No, not at all. So we don't have that nostalgia attached to it, which is obviously no. a little bit different to the experience of a lot of people. Mm. But I still, I still rate it. Like, I feel like if I watched Goonies for the first time now, I'd be like... Yeah, sure, I get it, but but it's shit. Really? Fucking I, what? Holy crap. Most of those wow. 80s adventure movies don't really hold up to exist without nostalgia attached to them. Goonies ain't those movies. Come on now. I watched <laughs> Goonies on a plane the other day and cried twice. Yeah? Which bits uh, make you cry? Uh, Mouth's speech down in the uh, in the caves. And uh, when Sloth and Chunk first bond in the uh, in the like the lockup in the back of the restaurant. All right, beautiful moments, big moments. 
I always get choked up at the end as well. Uh, just a fucking great movie in any context, I think. But I, I agree, like a lot of those, like Indiana Jones, I don't think does much for me. Yeah. Like if I watched it for the first time now in a modern context. Anyway, fuck all that noise. Black Christmas is better than all of those movies. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it does It does some really interesting things. Yeah. Well, what, what are some of your like big, what some of the big hits for you in this movie? Some of the things it does that are most interesting to you? So there's a, there's two moments. Well, firstly, let's say the the way that it plays around with perspective and and points of view is yeah. obviously amazing. Like we'd seen, like the killer's point of view in Italian Giallo uh, movies before this. Sure, we see some of that in the in Texas Chainsaw Massacre that comes out the same year. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, those two films together, I think, form the basis of of the entire genre. Yeah. Individually they both have bits of that, but like when you put them together and you sort of examine them both, that's where everything comes from, basically. But yeah, the way that it plays around with POV, particularly obviously you get a lot of killer POV, mm-hmm. um, but you also get quite a lot of victim or person sort of terrified walking around the house POV. Yeah. And the the way that it just sort of throws you around, like messes with you to make you feel certain things at certain times. Like if, if when it wants you to feel icky you're stood outside a window watching people talk and you can't hear anything that they're saying. And when it wants you to feel fucking terrified, you're seeing through Jess's eyes as she finds the corpses of her friends. It's like, it's fucking masterful. Yeah. This is things that and like people aren't getting right in 2023. And the fact that they were, they were doing it so perfectly in 1974, the inception, the inception point of, of slasher films. It's it's incredible. Yeah, and they're, they're doing it with such limited means and such a limited palette of material to draw from. They're mounting this gigantic camera on a guy's shoulder while he climbs a janky roof terrace outside a real house. You know, yeah. They're doing that for real in the middle of a frigid Toronto winter. And they're, they're setting up these dolly tracks and these planks and these boards in, in a, a big house. Yeah, sure, but not a house built to shoot in. And they're giving you these roaming POV shots without even the slightest little glimmer of any of the floor work or shadow or anything like perfectly executed in a tiny amount of time in a way that you know blew all of those previous influences out the water in my opinion and you're right we've got pov shots in cinema all the way back to whatever like the 30s and killer pov but we don't get this bendy semi fisheye disorientating sickening nauseating hearing the killer's nasal breathing until now basically uh, especially not in the you know in, in uh, american slash canadian cinema so it's kicking down doors immediately these are the opening shots of the film plus breaching the enormous taboo of the ultimate pristine beautiful homely happy christmas uh yeah. starting on this dreary scary classic old dark house festooned in christmas lights full of boozing uh you know fast talking wild independent sorority girls yeah they're they're so young and college age aren't they sam (laughs) well here's the thing no obviously (laughs) that fucking what that one guy you know the guy i mean exactly who you mean (laughs) do you mean chris hayden is that which one which guy's that so chris hayden is the boyfriend of the first victim claire harrison and he's the guy that plays hockey. He plays plays in goal. Oh, that's is that Art Hindle? Yeah. No, not him. That's not the guy I mean. Obviously, he's fifty. 
But the guy with the glasses and the moustache and the, the afro, I think he's only in the party scene at oh, the beginning. Oh, jeez. Yeah, uh, Graham. Is that Graham? Leslie I'm Carlson? I'm not sure. Yeah, he is fucking 40 at least. I don't yeah. know, man. But the, I mean, first of all, uh, Art Hindle playing Chris Hayden, the hottest man on earth, in my opinion. Uh, the time that he is on screen, with or without that fur coat, I just think he's the fucking most beautiful man I've ever seen. And he has about two lines, and he's in it for about 10 seconds. My biggest criticism of this film. What a waste. That's insane, because, like, in a movie where John Saxon looks this good... Yeah. John Saxon is a... is a Particularly mid-70s John Saxon, like, he's in a lot of Italian films around this time. He's in yeah. um, a lot of films that look very similar to this. And, but he is so striking in this movie specifically yeah i don't know if it's like obviously he's a cop and we don't mm. like cops at the final transition podcast so if you're <laughs> a cop listening to this turn it off um <laughs> go on jamie <laughs> so please continue just the way he looks the way he's shot in this because he's a cop and he's obviously the heroic cop and he's set against the backdrop of fucking nash and yeah. all these fucking idiot cops that don't know what fellatio is yep and like this guy couldn't detect his way out of a fucking paper bag. Yeah. So like he just looks great. And the fact that he's he's the, the person that believes them. He's a the person that understands that something fucky is going on. Yeah. Um he's actually doing his job. Yeah. Which, you know, is is not is not something we see an awful lot in cop roles. No. Or if it is, they're they're breaking the rules. They're breaking all the rules to to get their man or whatever. Yeah. Which, you know, has a place. But that's how well the cop dynamic is woven into this film. That you have you have an inept and bumbling but lovable Nash. And then you have a supporting lovable. cast of cops. Oh, I love him. He's so sweet. He, he fucks up big time. He basically is the reason that so many people die. Correct. But <laughs> he's too Canadian not to like him. <laughs> we'll come back to Nash. Okay. But I think... The, the cop dynamic is so perfect here because you have one guy. I mean, Lieutenant Ken Fuller, played by John Saxon, is not doing a great job of being a detective. He's doing a competent job in that he, for a lot of the movie, has his feet on his desk. He's joking around with the guys. He's just sort of wandering around, like binning people off and, you know, dishing out pot shots. But he does kind of follow up on the right leads. And he does organize a search party. And he, but he does it with this, like, almost like procedural nonchalance that i love in his performance so two things i want to point out about john saxon in this movie one he looks so fuckable he looks so unbelievably fuckable in this movie and two i think it's because of how they light him i think he's lit so well throughout the yeah. movie it might be quick lighting setups that just play well to his features and his like hair color and the way he moves because some people don't look quite as perfectly lit but he is fucking exquisite in every scene I'll tell you who isn't well lit throughout this entire movie. Who's that? Margot Kidder. She looks Ooh. so bad. No. Hard disagree. It's so hard to express how hot she is in this film. It, it's physically painful to me. She's only hot because she's, she's attainable to, to the audience. Oh, she is not a, to me. Are you kidding? <laughs> she, is a, she is a woman that likes to fuck. Sure. And to drink wine and to mention fellatio at every given opportunity technically sexual harassment but we'll we'll allow Look at you it. siding with the sexually harassed cop <laughs> this is new ground for us sexual harassment is bad regardless of 
who it's happening to, even if it's happening to a fucking pig piece of shit. Get that on a t-shirt, kids. Uh, <laughs> ask for that for Christmas. I listen. I think the there's a lot of difficult setups in this movie in terms of lighting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And Margot Kidder is a famous wild card. You know, she's flying around the set. She's probably drunk for real. She's showing up hungover every day and partying every night. She's having the time of her life, uh, or or not. Mm-hmm. Sadly, obviously, you know, we know Margot Kidder. Sadly died by suicide, drugs and booze styly. But in the movie, you know, in the moments of making this movie, everyone reports that she was having an absolute blast. Um, maybe true, maybe not. But, you know, I, I think they do a great job of kind of taming the wildcat and making her look pretty glamorous in this movie. So I can't believe how much we disagree on that fact. At least we both just, agree that uh, fucking John Saxon looks fuckable as hell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, John Saxon is, is the heartthrob of this movie. The beating heartthrob at the center gets my almost wasn't racing. in it as well. Yeah, almost wasn't in it. Last minute cast. Uh, the guy that they had for him uh, was like descending into Alzheimer's and had to pull out literally the night before they shot the movie. It would have been different had it not been John Saxon because obviously John yeah. Saxon plays this role quite a lot. Yeah, obviously it's a, it's a pretty safe pair of hands for the for the last minute edition, but mm-hmm. it's not something that we haven't seen from him before. No, we're very I mean, comfortable with him in this role, right? This yeah. uniform, this everything, this demeanor. But, yeah. I, you know, I put this at the top of his cop performances. Yeah, I think so too. I think he is he is nailing it here. Yeah. And and, and like you say, it's just the way he looks, the, the the way he's lit, the way that he sort of strides. He's he's a he's a very confident actor, but he also mm. like portrays confidence really really well. Yeah. Even if yeah. it's misplaced sometimes. Absolutely. And I think he, he does a great job in this movie of showing, uh, you know, both sides of the character in the kind of fun, loving, mischievous, smiling cop that we don't get a lot of from him in other movies. The, the best thing about how these cops are portrayed in this movie is we do spend a lot of time with them and we spend a lot of time behind the scenes in the investigation and, and the stuff that's going on at the station. So I think it adds to the plot big time to spend a lot of time with these guys. Um, I would encourage anyone watching this movie, either for the first time or on rewatch, to pay close attention to when uh, Chris Hayden, Art Hindle, pulls his goalie hockey mask off for the first time because he is trouser-droppingly hot and so underutilized in this movie. Um, yeah. Big shout out to Art Hindle. What a stud. Yeah, he's my favorite art. Really? Not Alex Akis from Everclear? No. Um, it was a toss-up between him and um, Picasso. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go to an art gallery that's just art Hindle nudes. I would <laughs> fucking join the National Trust or whatever the fuck you have to do to go to art galleries nowadays for that. You, would, you, or- would you join the National Front for that? <laughs> do you know what? For art Hindle, yes. Yes, I would. <laughs> Let's fucking talk about the elephant in the room. It's Olivia Hussey playing the character of Jess. Ostensibly the, well, the final girl, but supposedly the hero of this movie. Let's talk about the Huss. What are your thoughts? I was instantly put off from her at the start of the film because of her weird accent. Mm. I thought she was Australian. I thought she was... French doing an American accent. Mm-hmm. Turns out she's just English. Turns out she's just fucking shit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I quite like her role. I like that she's got some fortitude behind her. Yeah. Um, but what I don't like is 
how much time we spend with her when we could be spending that time with other people. Obviously, she is ostensibly the lead and is what we would come to call as the uh, the final girl. Mm. And I like that she probably dies at the end. Yeah, love that. Absolutely love that. There's a lot to like here. Let's not take everything away from her. The things, the only thing I don't like, and it's borderline performance ruining, is the way that she answers the phone because she does mm. it so many times and it's so annoying. She gets it right once in the whole film. The rest is bad. She, Her character is superb. For 1974, a young sorority sister who has told her boyfriend that she's getting an abortion, whether he likes it or not, and is just going to go ahead and do it. And at the end has the strength of character and the fortitude to run back into a house with a killer inside it to try and save her friends with a poker. Superb. Absolutely superb writing. Well-drawn, totally real-feeling character throughout. She just doesn't lead the cast enough for me to go all in on her. I think she's absolutely gorgeous. She's dressed perfectly throughout the movie in that creepy hands over the chest sweater yeah. like the the knitted sweater thing such weird beautiful yeah. choice of costume but there's just something about her that lacks an edge and i think it's because she was hot off the back of that massive romeo and juliet and everyone was blowing trumpets hard up her ass and i just think maybe she didn't give it 100 percent until the fucking last scene yeah i think that's probably it because obviously this is a very small budget canadian mm. film yeah Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet is a special thing, but it's it's not a fucking Hollywood blockbuster because they no. didn't exist at this point. But you know what I mean? Sure. It's not blowing everyone's socks off. It's it's an it's like an art house interpretation of Romeo and Juliet. It won a lot um, of awards for its yeah. you know for its ilk, didn't it? It was it was you know well received in that regard. Yeah, I mean it, it is amazing. I love it. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a weird move for me. Mm. And I think it shows an actress trying to show her range and then maybe failing a bit. Yeah. Ultimately figuring it out as the movie goes on, I think, which is sad. I think a longer, maybe a slightly higher budge would have got the best out of her. But mixed, mixed bag performance wise, I give her the big pass because I do think... Uh, it's a hard, it's a hard role, especially for the time. You know, she must yeah. have been fucking like, oh Jesus Christ, this movie's got the word cunt in it. What? It's 1974. Come on. Uh, yeah. You know, she must have been dealing with a lot. Plus, she's she's bouncing off uh, a mixed cast, really. You know, the the sorority sisters in general. Some of them aren't even actresses. Some of them are, uh, you know, hair and makeup people and you know, runners and shit. So yeah. I, I give her a lot of uh, a lot of space to flex throughout the movie. Sometimes I think maybe it's just a preference thing. She just kind of rubs them up the wrong way here and there. What is it about her answering the phone that you don't like? Hello, hello, hello. She, do- she does do that. Hello, that is it. it's 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 not an accent. Nobody talks like that. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? Just but she's English, right? The whole movie yeah. she's English. Why are you answering the phone like that? And she gets like unnecessarily frustrated immediately if somebody doesn't do exactly what she wants them to. And that comes through answering the phone. It comes through when she's talking to, I can't remember who she's talking to. Is it the cops? And they asked to put her on hold and she's like, yes, but only for a minute. Like (laughs) she's so demanding. I don't know. There's a lot I like, a lot I don't like. Real mixed performance. There's some urgency in what's happening at that moment though, right? Yeah, but it doesn't, it feels, her acting and that, her mood and her tone feels inappropriate. It doesn't feel like urgency, it feels spoilt. And I don't think that was the right delivery for those lines. I don't know, maybe I'm being hypercritical because I really like the movie. Um, Yeah. Her IMDb bio is a rough hang. There's a bit in there that says something like, thought by most to be the most beautiful woman in the world. (laughs) 
<laughs> what? Who the fuck has that in their bio? Yeah, that's, that's insane. Yeah, that should be in fucking Margot Kidder's bio. Not that we're picking favourites here. Andrew Martin <laughs> also playing the Red Hot Phil in this film. Yeah. Killer, like a, killer Phil. Yeah, Phil, Phil Rips and a good career. Nobody else in this movie really had a great career, let's be honest. Yeah, I was interested um, in the idea that it was going to be Gilda Radner as Phil. Yeah, that's fascinating. But um, too small a role for her, surely. I mean, it's 1974, so we're, we're only really at the start of, of, of SNL. Mm. Obviously, she was big off the back of like Lemmings and the, and the stuff at the Lampoon. But yeah. that is niche big. That's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's not household name big. Sure. Um, but I feel like the character st- it still feels like a Gilda Radner character. Mm. Like I, I still sort of see Gilda Radner in that role doing all those things, maybe not having quite a, the same hairdo. Yeah, it is. It is easy to imagine her in that role for sure. Yeah. I think, I think um, Andrew Martin pulls it off big time. She's one of the most convincing performances in the movie for my money. Um, she, she's great, and she obviously goes on to have a pretty good career. You know, a lot of voice acting, a lot of cool stuff. You know, she's on the right side of a lot of bad projects, but um, we love her. Love it a bit. She's great. I think as a cast they actually gel really fucking well. I think there's a, a ton of chemistry and you see that a lot in movies that seem to be banged together pretty quickly, but with a really strong identity. And I yeah. think that speaks to the director's ability to kind of get everyone in the same place and, and feeling the same thing. But I mean, it's a small cast. Do you think they, do you think they pull it off performance wise, broadly speaking? Yeah, I think so. I think there are some moments where it all sort of descends into squawking. Mm. I don't know if it's because the, timbre of all of these actors voices is all quite similar yeah. so when they're in like party scenes it just or maybe it's even the sound mix on the version that i watched the mm. the, the version that i watched is like the shout factory dvd from uh 2002 maybe right. okay so i don't know if it is maybe the audio mix on that that is the issue but there are there are some moments where like like i say in crowd scenes or in scenes where they're screaming um or even when they're like on the um, the search party, for example, yeah, it, their, their voices all sort of meld at that same pitch level, so it becomes a bit screechy and hard to hear. You can't really tell who's who when they're shouting. Sure, that was my main issue with the with how they all sort of gel together. Mm. But I mean, that's I guess that's kind of true to life, anyway, isn't it? So yeah, and I think there's a realness to those interactions that. It, the sound mix on my I've got I've got this on Blu-ray it's one of the few movies that mm. I, I only buy movies on Blu-ray if I absolutely love them so this this I bought and I have this like uh, interchangeable cover art where one is like a completely unforgivable modern shitty cover I don't know what it is it's like a reflection in a Christmas bauble and some terrible font and then the other side is the classic white with the wreath and the Claire with the plastic over her face uh, the sound mix on mine is fucking amazing the music in particular jeez oh, it's harrowing it is a harrowing music mix it's so scary yeah so one one of the things that um and this might be me but i thought the piano recital was not bad but some sort of freeform jazz bullshit <laughs> it's uh you know considering both of us do quite a lot of things in music in our lives yeah. i am very refreshed to hear that you feel the same as me i watched that piano scene and i'm like 
Seems fine. No yeah. idea if this is good or bad. <laughs> this is just like fast, aggressive piano. Is it? And they're looking at him like, oh, you absolute amateur. And he's sweating buckets and he looks yeah. like he's getting it wrong every second. And I'm just like, yeah, that's that's what piano sounds like. <laughs> if it was me making it, and maybe this is a testament to the film, is that it's fast and aggressive and that's yeah. bad rather than like he's just dropping notes and like clunking flat notes or whatever out. Sure. Which is maybe what I would do, which might be a bit more entry level in terms of storytelling. Yeah, yeah, it would be way funnier if he's just like, <laughs> oh, fuck, yeah. sorry, I fucked up. <laughs> just like chopsticks, fucking up yeah. chopsticks. I mean, he's been at this conservatory for eight years. He's supposed to be like a, you know, a global concert standard pianist. And I think the idea, and I do think it's actually done quite well, but I think the idea here is that he he has an enormously high expectation of himself and the like level of professionalism that's expected of him as a pianist is yeah. out of everyone's frame of reference except these fucking snooty dick holes that are you know whatever marking him i don't know what's going on but he fails big time right and the yeah dude the piano in this movie i shazammed the piece that he was playing <laughs> that's yeah. right i have shazam boomer and uh it, apparently it's evil night by carl zitra and the artwork on the the Shazam thing is awesome. It's um, Billy slash the killer with like the highlighted eye and uh, what do you call it? The tusk, the horn of the unicorn. What is a unicorn? Yeah. Is it a horn? It's a horn. A horn? Yeah, okay. The horn. And then inside his body is this like highlighted North Star in a Christmas tree shape with the house at the bottom. It looks fucking amazing. It must be from the vinyl or something. You Shazammed it. I did. I Shazammed it. Nice. Maybe I'll listen to it later on Winamp or something. Or... Uh pandora radio or something pandora radio oh sick burn jamie yes i'll be tuning into pandora radio later to listen to uh good old fucking i forgot his name already carl zitra's evil night um not not a song that you're going to be putting on your christmas playlist anytime soon unpleasant to the untrained ear whether played excellently or not i think the 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 big thing to say about the score of this movie is that it's a lot of piano. It's a lot of piano crashes and discordant drones. The two things that work best for me in the whole soundscape of this movie are those huge flat hand hits on the piano mm. mixed in with the sound of the whistling wind. It yeah. is always there. The whole way through the movie, there's this howling wind outside and it it really gets under my skin. It just shits me up from start to finish. And I think Bob Clark knew exactly what he was doing when he brought in all of that real natural sound that yeah. makes up the score of this movie well i think it's 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 there to make you feel super isolated super mm-hmm. cold super alone like yeah. there's there's no one for miles even though you know we're in a city but it doesn't matter it's christmas yeah. everyone's gone yeah it's that and really isolates that sort of i don't know i guess we call it what is it sids not sids that's the cot death what's uh sad seasonal affective disorder sad feeling really sid today yeah it, yeah it's supposed to just encase you and envelop you in darkness and to take away the the joy and the buoyancy and the sort of bubbliness of the sorority is no mean feat in a movie you know to really undermine that with something deeply sinister and have them behave you know and to not just draw them as sorority sisters and not just have them as a, a flat cliche character to give them the depth to be in despair and to be lonely and to be isolated without just being uh, easy pickings and victims I think is yeah. really artfully done I think the cleverest thing with the sound 
you know, we're obviously supposed to think for a chunk of the movie that Peter is the killer. And the sound leans into that because it's piano and we see him fail at his piano recital because his girlfriend wants an abortion and then smash up his piano. So do you think that's, is it too on the nose? Like second or third watch, I did kind of think, is the score connecting us to Peter way too much or is it just sort of incidental? I don't think it's too on the nose. I think mm. it's I think it's quite subtle until it's not. And then you go back and then you apply that that level of knowledge to the stuff that's come before. Mm. You never notice that. You ever think, oh, Peter's a pianist and the music is piano and the, the scary time is piano time. Like it never... <laughs> <laughs> the scary time is piano time. Like it never, you don't, you don't know that until you know it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. In the same way that like, yeah, I think um, that there's a lot around, I don't know what the cinematic term is, you probably have to correct me here, but there is some amazing juxtaposition in this movie that you could say is a little bit hard and a little bit on the nose, but that works so well. The two best bits are when Claire is being murdered and we see her dad just pacing around waiting to meet her because she's half yeah. an hour late. Superb. And then when uh, Barb is being murdered, uh, Jess is at the door with a bunch of carolers just listening to like their dead-eyed but incredibly beautiful singing. And we're seeing yeah. her being stabbed to death with a fucking crystal unicorn. I mean, that is like, on paper, maybe a bit simplistic, but it ticks all of my boxes. I think it works so well. Yeah, I think to a lesser extent, there's a, there's a scene or a, a transition mm. where, is it Jess goes to scream and then it cuts to the phone ringing? Yeah. And it's like the how terrifying the phone ringing has always been because someone at the end of it's going to call you a cunt. It's like my day job. But then that moment is like, we're so scared of hearing the phone ring because we know, I mean, we need to talk about how horrible those phone calls are in a sec, yeah, maybe. But definitely. like, we, we already feel super uneasy every time the phone rings because we know that it's going to be one of these really horrible calls that are not just like someone heavy breathing or being like, I'm going to kill you. It's like, it's horrible. And it's yeah. so, in, they're, they're insane and they're erratic. Oh God, it's amazing. But so, yeah. So like giving us permission sort of cinematically to feel that way about the phone ringing it, by tying it into that character scream. I think it's Jess. I, I think it's I, Jess. I, I can't quite remember, but yeah, it's, it's a masterful piece of editing. It's like, it's, I would say maybe even like Hitchcockian. Like it's, I was going to say exactly that. That's how it feels, right? It feels yeah. Perfectly executed. Uh, yeah, so clever. There's quite a lot of that, the, the visual tracking cues that lead you to an audio sting and, and just the linkage where, you know, the, the sound in the movie is so tied in with reality sounds or whatever you want to yeah. call it, like sounds of things that are actually happening, that it becomes its own sort of character. That sounds like the most pretentious bullshit I've ever said in my life, but it's true. <laughs> and there's not many movies that do that as well as this, in my opinion. Yeah, so, there's a couple of other bits. There's like a there's like a shot with with Jess in the background and Peter in the foreground, and it's or maybe the other way around. Maybe Jess is in the foreground and Peter's in the background. Yeah, but it's like a split. It's a split diopter shot, so they're both in focus, and it feels mm. really insane. And obviously, that's part of the where we're supposed to be looking at Peter, even when we're, even when we don't know that we're supposed to be looking at Peter. So like that's a, a really nice, interesting way of doing that to make sure that you're focusing on him even when you know that you shouldn't really be focusing on him. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's just, it's really cleverly shot. Yeah. There, there are some clunkers, I think, mm -hmm. but for the most part, like there's, there's a lot of strong thought that's gone into like how we're shooting this and how, how we're representing the things that we want to represent through, 
through the medium of, of blocking and framing and cutting and there's there's a reason why it was so influential and it's because yeah. it's it lands on almost every level yeah and i think from from reading about how deliberate bob clark is on set you know showing up to the set every single day with his his whatever his cue cards like his rolodex cards with the mm. exact blocking of the scene and who's where and what's happening and a diagram of where the camera is and everything yeah you know, it really pays off uh it's obviously really considered um it's it's pulling from a script that's obviously had like several iterations and versions and it just just all comes together in a pretty magical way and you're right there's a lot that's pretty beige that could have been a lot better i think but if if that's the lowest bar in the movie is that some of the shots could have been better then i think you're in a fucking great spot for a classic but um yeah you know on the subject of the killer and the phone calls why don't we talk a little bit about how you feel on that front because i wasn't sure how you'd feel about a killer that's largely unseen not particularly you know not drawn in anyway not explained no overt backstory whatsoever and very very minimal physical appearances in the movie what do you think about the killer in this film i mean i love that mm. i don't want it for every meal but i'll absolutely take it on on a, on a special occasion i think it's i think it's wonderfully done the mm. idea that we get all these glimpses through the phone calls all the uh billy and agnes stuff and we don't know what's happening and you've got to try and piece it together but like it's important that you don't know because if you if we know if we get a backstory of this character he just becomes just a guy, crazy guy doing some crazy stuff. The the fear of the unknown is the, is the real driving fear here. The mm-hmm. idea that obviously that someone might be in the house that you don't know about, but also that you don't know what they're thinking and they could literally do anything at any moment. The phone calls, like, like I said before, that are horrible. They, mm. they 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 grab me at a really sort of visceral, deep subconscious sort of way because it's just like they're so erratic. And like the noises are so guttural and horrible mm. and disgusting. And then like the way that they switch between voices, obviously we know in the real world that there are multiple people doing these voices, mm. but the way that it sort of switches between characters within this one character makes it so scary. Like you never really know who's there. The, the scariest moment for me is when he cuts all the bullshit and it's just like, I'm going to kill you. And yeah. like, a normal voice yeah that's that's the scariest moment and it's the first call that we hear as well it's so fucked up i i mean i love everything about the the killer in this movie absolutely literally everything but in another much less good universe there is a version of this movie where the word billy gets said on the phone and one of the sorority sisters says there was a guy who lived here in 1942 called bill and they give some bullshit story and then the rest of the movie, you have this preconceived idea of who Billy is. And Billy is the killer, Ugh. and Billy this, Billy that. And that is fucking dreadful. And I yeah. guarantee at some point, somebody said, we need to establish the character of Billy with some expository dialogue. And Bob Clark said, fuck you, it's my film. And I love that. Yeah. And I, I, I love the way that he shot, um, the way that you sort of see him lurking in the house when you don't know that you're seeing him. Yeah. Like there's moments where he's just sort of in the shadows at the back and you see a little shadow moving. And maybe that's not on purpose. Maybe that's just the fucking grip trying to get out of the shot. But like yeah. there's like there's another moment as well where I couldn't decide whether it was Phil going up the stairs and her reflection in the background mm. or whether it was purposeful, like because it's like it feels like I mean it might just be the angle and it is a mirror, but it feels like there's like a there's a split second of hesitation between Phil going up the stairs and the shadow following her. Yeah. And it, 
I don't know if that was meant to be that or if it was just the way that the, the yeah, I don't know. But because I know that sometimes there are shadows there and, and that they're potentially the killer lurking around every corner, yeah. Billy, I'm always looking out for it. And that was one that I spotted. There's a couple of others. The idea that like the killer is just, I mean, obviously in 2023, um, they call it frogging now for whatever fucking reason. But the idea what? that like someone unseen is like living in your house and, frogging. and yeah with the ph i don't know why i don't know why it's called oh frogging. my god okay all right moving on because fuck that yeah but like the idea that someone is living in your house yeah no one sane is living in your house when you don't know about it do you know what i mean it's impossible <laughs> yeah. no one's just like hidey ho neighbor that's not happening is it no dude it's not just a it's not a nice person that's decided they live in your attic. It's not somebody helpful. It's not a presence that's gonna bring you any joy. It's somebody yeah. who's gonna kill all your friends. Like the best case scenario is it's like some some, some sort of magical imp that has landed oh, yeah. there. But it's never that. It's always psycho killer loony man. I was gonna say. Yeah. yeah. I would even I would even take like an imp that has to kill a couple of my friends to do something great for me. I'd take that, but no, yeah. I don't want. I don't want Billy in my attic. The guy is fucking. Te one of the, I would go as far as to say probably one of the scariest slasher killers in existence because what we see of him is so perfectly shot, so yeah. deliberately concealed and menacing. We hear his voice. We see his eye. That's fucking it. Yeah. Oh my I mean, that, god. That's, is that refreshing? that's very that's very giallo. But yeah. the, the way that he's shot when he's a physical presence, the eye, obviously we know how much the Italians love looking at eyes, threatening mm -hmm. eyes, all that stuff. The shot of him where his eye is lit and the rest of yeah. him isn't lit. Like that's, I mean, that looks amazing. It's almost sort of copied wholesale from, I want to say Tenebrae or maybe a different um, Argento movie. But right. like, it feels different here because in, in, in the giallo, everything is so light and bright and colourful. There's no colour in this movie. It's, no. it's black, white, beige and grey, and that's all you're seeing. Mm -hmm. and the idea that we don't know who he is is the most compelling thing in the world to me. Like I say, I, 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 I don't want that all the time. Yeah. But the idea that like every now and then there are there are movies about killers where they don't feel like they have to bombard you with who they are or even... I don't know, in like Friday the 13th, it's a fake out ultimately, yeah. but like you still know so much about that killer. So you understand that when it's Mrs. Voorhees, when it's Pamela Voorhees, that it's like, well, yeah, obviously that makes sense. Jason's dead or is he? Well, but like the, um, <laughs> that's him jumping out of the water. I know, I know the exact thing you're doing. It's great. <laughs> but yeah, so like the, the idea that like, we don't know anything about him apart from the tiny snippets of his insanity that we see on the phone, him yeah. breathing, him sort of bubbling around in the attic. We don't even know if he kills the girl in the park. Yep. That we could just no be idea. completely unrelated murderings. Mm -hmm. I mean, we assume it's him. He's a murderer and he's around. But yeah. like, yeah, I think it's amazing. And the idea that we, we're we led to believe throughout that it's Peter, maybe not throughout, but as, as the, the whodunit element ramps up, yeah, and then she kills Peter, and we all feel safe. We can all breathe, and then through some insanity, the cops all leave Jess alone in the house with the killer. 
so scary. Saw. Yeah, it's horrible. It's, I, so the the explanation I read, it, there's a lot of like subtle dialogue happening in that scene that I think you just miss because you're so fucking mm. shocked at what's happened. But the reason they all leave is because they don't have a coroner in the town because it's so small and they don't have enough storage for the bodies. So they all have to go off and obviously they believe that she's safe. Ooh, fucking not safe. And then they, you know, they, the, the fucking the rest of the movie happens. But I, I didn't believe for a second when I first saw this that it was Peter, not even for a single solitary second. And what was driving me insane as a viewer is having no alternative. I love that. I yeah. know it's not Peter. It cannot be Peter. And then at one point when we see the killer's eye, I'm like, it's 100% not Peter. It's a different color fucking eye. But I have no alternative. So I'm thinking the whole time, like, I'm going to be wrong, aren't I? There's going to be something I've missed. And you're constantly off balance in this film. You, yeah. you know, the, the, the stuff that you hear over the phone is supposed to be your clues to who this killer is. So you're trying to make these connections. You're trying to piece together a story from the things that they're saying. And I got nothing. I read loads of stuff online from all these people who, like, figured out the whole backstory of fucking Billy and, and knew his entire life from the phone calls. I call bullshit on that. Uh, I, I don't think that's possible, but, you know, it turns well, I out... Well, if, if that's the case, like, how reliable is Billy in these fucking moments, I think? How reliable is Billy's narrative? Yeah, exactly. Literally, like... <laughs> He's, like, jacking off, stabbing himself, punching himself in the neck, screaming in four different voices, hiding in your house. Like, is his telling of the story 100% to be trusted? <laughs> uh, but Bob Clark has gone on record and, and said who Billy is. You know, he's yeah. he's gone through the whole, the whole backstory, which is great. I, I don't think that harms the material at all. Um, and we now know with a modern lens that Bob Clark and John Carpenter had open conversations about Halloween basically being a fucking sequel to Black Christmas, about yeah. the idea that Billy is taken to a, an institution after these murders at some point. He escapes, and the second movie would start on the night of his escape. So, you know, the two of them openly acknowledging their influence on each other and, and the, the kind of professional artistic generosity between them with the material... And, and what we get is like the ultimate anti-clickbait. Two great directors with two great ideas, sharing them and spawning a genre. It's fucking awesome. It's not It's not like, oh, Carpenter stole Halloween from Black Christmas or whatever. There's loads of tips of the hat and loads of nods to it. But nobody's getting ripped off here. Nobody's disenfranchised. They're fucking feeding each other. And Billy is, is fucking twice as menacing as Michael Myers to me. Because you don't, you don't know him. Exactly. The the issue with Michael Myers, particularly now, is that we've had five hundred movies yeah. all with him walking around looking stiff and getting killed at the end. Yeah. Like no slasher movie killer survives at the end in quite the way that Billy does here. Fuck they yeah. all they all get the shit kicked out of them in, in one way or another. Yeah. Even in we talked about Hatchet a few weeks ago, even in Hatchet where Adam Green didn't want to make or wanted to make a movie where the slasher killer didn't get the shit kicked out of him. He still yeah. gets the shit kicked out of him to a bit. He just gets back up. Yeah. As soon as he goes off being on fire, he's he's back up and around again. Where yeah. it's like basically nothing happens to Billy in this film. He's nope. he is given free reign to wander around this house, kill as many people as he likes. Mm -hmm. No one even knows or believes that he exists because yeah. they're all looking at Peter as we are as the audience. Mm -hmm. So like that's what's scary. Maybe if Halloween was um, stood alone, then we wouldn't feel quite the same way. I mean, we do get an awful lot of fucking backstory about Michael Myers, but like yeah. 
that's also scary because you never know what he's thinking or what he's doing. Where yeah. we always know what Billy's thinking, but we never know who's thinking that and why and what the. I just think it's it's a really good way to establish a killer through this insane gibbering. Yeah, it feels so real. His his how unhinged he is doesn't feel even much, much, much later as a viewer, feel like a cliche at all. It feels wholly mm. convincing, and it's a huge part of his fear factor. You know, Michael largely... You know, I'm a huge Halloween fan. Let's just fucking say that. But there's so much wrong with Michael and so much wrong with Halloween 2 to 7 uh, that, that yeah. I find them almost unwatchable. And Michael's drive to kill Laurie doesn't make any fucking sense until you bring in this bullshit side story of her being his sister. Still doesn't make a lot of fucking sense. But Billy, on the other hand, he's not aiming for one particular sorority girl. He doesn't have a plan. He doesn't have a fucking agenda. And I don't think he means to survive. He certainly doesn't mean to frame Peter in any way. What happens is uh, Peter gets fucking absolutely blapped in the noodle by his uh, sort of semi-girlfriend slash ex-girlfriend. And then, you know, my read on it is that he goes downstairs and kills her when everyone's left. And then he rings the phone. He's out of his fucking tree just waiting for the next warm body to kill well, i mean That's we know scarier, that, dude we know that he makes a call every time he kills someone yeah like that is established in the dialogue so the idea that we know that they're alone in the house and then yep. we're panning slowly away from the house and the phone Ugh. rings we we know that that's what happened they don't need to show us much like they don't need to show us mu- many of the deaths within the film yep yeah, me, me and you and a lot of other people, we love gore, we love inventive kills, but like mm-hmm. nothing scarier than having to imagine it yourself. Yeah, and this is not a gore movie. It's it's you know a lot of people will call it a slasher. There's there's some impactful kills and some you know Barb's kill is fucking poetry. Mm. It's so beautifully shot, so well done, so well paced. You know Mrs. Max kill is comedically slashertastic. You know it's fucking swinging cargo hook to the face and then you're dragged up through a fucking loft shaft superb absolutely superb no notes but uh, for the most part this isn't a gory film and we're psychologically terrorized from start to finish by billy without even knowing who he is or where he is or what he's doing and that last shot of the lonely freezing cold empty sorority house with the red and green christmas lights just a slow pan away with the phone ringing is the bleakest most chilling ending to a horror movie that I have ever experienced. It's fucking, it's the best ending to a horror movie that I can think of off the top of my head. I love it so much. It's agony. And it is not, repeat, not Christmassy. (laughs) It's so fucking dark. I love it so much. Yeah, well, I think think one of the reasons that I like Black Christmas so much Mm. as a Christmas horror movie is that it's, it's about sort of slowly dismantling Christmas. Yeah, it's an assassination how, of your Christmas spirit. Literally, like we start off and everyone's feeling very fucking Christmassy. Mm-hmm. Suddenly Barb's disinvited to her Christmas dinner or whatever yeah. and has to go skiing. Um and then like from there, yeah, we explore the sort of the loneliness of Christmas mm-hmm. and, and the isolation that you that a lot of people feel at Christmas to the point where by the end of it, you almost forget it's Christmas because it's like it's too, there's too much murder yep. happening. Too many murders. Too many murders for Christmas. Without those red and green yeah. lights, yeah, it ain't. If you're just fucking, you're just in a horrible, horrible place. And I think you know the sort of tenuous nature of feeling good and the 
the superficiality of Christmas is is dragged out into a harsh spotlight here, and it is not a pleasant experience for the viewer. It's it's so shockingly bleak. Yeah. And at no point is anyone addressing any of this verbally. You know, nobody is talking about the themes that are happening. It's all so woven into the the subtlety of the script and the beauty of the shooting that you you're just you're just aware that everyone's fucking lonely and lost yeah. and struggling without anyone saying it. You know, when Phil bursts into tears, you're you're shocked because you're like, oh, Phil was really pretending really well to have it together for this whole movie. And then you get this glimpse into the sort of intimate, you know, completely depressed side of her that just makes her character 100% more, even more real. Uh, but those those little clever tricks are at play the whole way through the movie in ways that just run slightly below the surface. And that is fucking awesome American-Canadian filmmaking. There's a, there's a big part of Canada in this movie that I think is uh, maybe not as widely celebrated as it should be. The, the willingness to explore that and to show it in that just fucking naked, bare bulb way, I feel like is pretty quintessentially Canadian. Even like Peter's arc... Mm. As as we're like playing with him as as potentially the killer, like yeah. he shows so much more emotion than like a male character in a slasher film would. Mm-hmm. Like he obviously he's a dick. He smashes up his piano because his girlfriend wants to get an abortion. Yeah, we- like it's <laughs> ob- he's a dick. But like yeah, PSI. I don't know. You you get a real sense that he wants kids. That he thinks that this is a, this is a good thing. Mm. Like he's like, oh god, it's amazing news when she first tells him. Yeah, and she's like. No, uh, daddy. Yep. So, like, we'd have to tell you that he's always wanted kids, and that the the idea that you know the woman that he loves is going to abort his baby is is crushing to him. Yeah. Like, you just sort of see the cracks, and that's what makes you think he's the killer because we're seeing the cracks, yeah. and we're not we're not we're not used to seeing a male character in a film, not least a horror film, mm. showing any real emotion or any real depth. So yeah, so when we get that, that 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 can only happen outside of like the main Hollywood system, yep. which at this point is is starting to collapse in terms of horror movies, and things do sort of devolve into. I mean, starting with let's say Night of Living Dead, mm. things are starting to devolve into regional ideas, people challenging the way that we're seeing things happen mm. in in the traditional sort of William Castle, Roger Corman style, yeah. Of just like, here's a plot, here's some stuff, here's the credits, see you next week for more of the same. Yeah, exactly. Like, which, which you know, there's a real place for that. I love a lot of those those movies, those sort of 50s and 60s style horror movies. But as we move into the 70s, we start devolving that out to people with new ideas. Uh, and in the same way that like things got really postmodern and towards the end of the 90s and into the 2000s. Mm. Like it's 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 a new generation of of people who who have grown up looking at the the stuff that came before them and thinking about it critically mm-hmm. and applying a, a new sense of of modernism to it, which makes it interesting and exciting and brave. This film is so fucking brave. Yeah. It has the word cunt in it so many times. <laughs> yeah, I know. Which like, how did it even get made in seventy four? Like people don't do that. The now. idea. I was. I remember the first time I saw this. I was so shocked. Yeah. To hear the word "cunt," a word I use five hundred times a day. <laughs> I was like, "You can say that in a film." <laughs> in like, the seventies. Astonishing. Yeah. It's so so fucking brave. And 
this this movie just throws a fucking bucket of gasoline on the creative spirits of so many people who were looking for this exact spirit of movie to just fucking yeah. to give their ideas credence and credibility. You know, this is one of Steve Martin's favorite movies. <laughs> yeah. You know, Sam Raimi am... loves this movie. Like everyone who yeah. does anything cool inside or slightly outside the Hollywood system will tell you they fucking love this film. It didn't do particularly well when it first came out, no. I think. It it performed much worse than they were expecting, and they weren't expecting gangbusters from it. No, um, I mean one of the highest almost... grossing Canadian films, but Warner Brothers fucked the distro and fucked with the image and yeah. screwed up the US release big time. But still, a, a Canadian triumph. But yeah, yeah. But like, it, it almost feels like that fucking Sex Pistols show that everyone talks about. Yeah. in Manchester. Yeah, where like there were only ten people there, but every one of them started. I don't know, in spiral carpets or whatever the fuck. So like, <laughs> everyone started some fucking god awful band, yeah, yeah. Everyone started the Smiths, <laughs> yeah, the way they did, yeah, that's true, yeah. Or the Pogues, you know, so, there's that, yeah. I mean, there was. I don't want to get too off track here. It's Christmas, but there are some good bands that came out of that. True. How do you feel, Sam, about about the Sex Pistols? Uh, a huge. That's a whole fucking four hour podcast. Fine, I don't. You know. I don't like them. I don't like their yeah. music at all. I don't like any of them as human beings from what I know. Uh, and I think that it's really annoying that they were so important and so influential, but such fucking dicks and such posers and such shocking babies. Um, I like what they achieved and I think they fucking suck. I think almost opposite, really. Because wow. I think sort of son sonically, I mean, I don't think that they're good people. Yeah. Obviously, that's... That would be insane. <laughs> but I think like sonically, Never Mind the Bollocks is it still sounds fresh. Yeah, but it sounds like a like fucking that... rock album to me now. It's like it I don't know. Yeah, it sounds fresh. It was it's well produced, but dude, it sounds fucking bad. I d I d I don't think I agree. I think it, if you if you applied it in terms of slasher movies, mm. all the bullshit, the Sex Pistols bullshit that came out afterwards, yeah. all of the, the it's it's all sequel shit right halloween if halloween stood alone mm. if never mind the bollocks stood alone they released that album they fucked off we never heard from them again yeah it would be considered a classic i mean it is considered a classic now so yeah. you know shut the fuck up jamie but like we would all feel very differently about it yeah. if they weren't scum and fucking butter adverts and supporting donald trump and everything yeah. that like has happened since the Sex Pistols were the Sex Pistols. We'd, yeah, we'd definitely... It'd be more like Crass or something, right? I mean, in yeah. a different way. I don't know. They'd have a bit more... Oh, fucking hell. Let's not even... i tell you what. Black Christmas is a punk band. Which punk band is Black Christmas? Well, so I think Crass could be could be a good shout wow. out because like... <laughs> okay. Because it's, because it's like, it's quite artistic. Yeah. It's got a lot of different ideas. It's quite funny. Yeah, but, but it also... It sounds like the punk that you know and love. Yeah. Despite the fact that it was being made outside of the system mm. when punk was big business. They've, they've got a cult following. There's been at least two bands that have reinterpreted class, uh, crass classics mm -hmm. uh, in their career. That Jeffrey Lewis crass covers album is one of my favorite records of all time. Yeah. It's really fucking good. I don't know if you if you're too into Jeffrey Lewis. No, but... I haven't heard that, but I'll definitely check it out. I think this movie has a strong social. Co it's trying to have a really strong social conscience as well. It's yeah. it gets some flack for falling into some classic traps of uh, being a bit misogynist at times, but the dudes in this movie are either inept, background, 
or calling up their girlfriends blubbering on the phone begging them not to have abortions so you know the misogyny here is is part of the narrative it's not not a failure in writing yeah. or directing and the women are fucking real as balls and really strong so i don't know i think it it's miles and miles ahead of its time in that regard like crass yeah absolutely <laughs> i think there there's the misogyny here is 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 about society's misogyny yeah. it's not bob clark's misogyny it's not roy moore's misogyny it's society because the the the, the characters despite what critics at the, at the time said yeah they just they are well drawn real feeling sometimes prone to hysterics but aren't we all yeah oh there's no way i'm going back into that house to save my friends i i know myself no. well enough to know that i would fucking do exactly what the cops told me and run the fuck away from the house uh, because I, I think so darkly and so pessimistically i'd assume they're already dead and i'd run away and it wouldn't be about yeah. courage for me it would just be about fucking defeatism but the fact that she runs back in you know it it's not the the bullshit slasher trope of oh the dumb girl goes back into the house. It's fucking heroic as shit. She doesn't yeah, get enough absolutely. credit for that. Jess's character doesn't get enough credit for being the hero. And you know what a fucking surprise. The cops are not the hero in this movie. She is. Yeah, it's not. It's not the line from Scream where it's like the dumb blondes always running up the stairs instead of out of the door. Yeah, like we understand why she's doing what she's doing, and we believe it, and we believe her. As annoying as she is on the phone, yeah. is the fact that she has no patience. We know that there's a there's a drive that's associated with that. Yeah. That it's 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 all there for a purpose, and it's all leading us basically to that moment where we know through the strength that she's shown throughout the film yeah. would allow her to run back into the house to try and save her friends. We love her by that it's point. Amazing. Yeah, it's it's the yeah. it's her crowning moment, and and we and that's why we're absolutely fucking devastated when we're pretty much hundred percent sure she's murdered because the cops are inept. And all the men pass out and have to be taken to hospital. That's <laughs> great. Yeah. And I think that there's something to be said. I mean, I don't want to go near the like Halloween parallels, really. But Laurie Strode as a character is absolute fucking two-dimensional snorefest garbage in the latter movies. I'm talking from 2018 onwards. Yeah. And her character becomes so unlikable and such a rough hang and should have been left in the first movie, in my opinion. I, I think a character like Jess, had she lived through this movie and had the movie been, uh, you know, put through the fucking ringer and made into a million sequels, thank, gee, thank hell it's not. But if that happened, I think she'd still be likable in her 50s, 60s, in a sort of Laurie Strode type capacity because the character is just better and just stronger and just warrants you know better treatment it's criminal what they did to laurie strode in the halloween franchise but she never had the strength of character to begin with in my opinion to to build on in that way yeah. and that was a fuck up whereas you know as as much as i have some some bones with the acting i think jess's character is fucking rad so obviously um we mentioned the idea of sequels or legacy sequels or whatever with yeah. this have you seen the remakes? No, fuck no. And I never will. I feel like I have seen the 2006 one, but I remember nothing about it. Yeah, that, that And I, I also saw the, the 2019 one, and I don't remember an awful lot, but I do remember liking it, but I don't remember anything that happens. Okay. Yeah, they exist. I think remakes in this instance are much better than sequels mm -hmm. because if we, if we get into Black Christmas 2, 3, 4, whatever, we start either having to explore Billy and his origins and all that stuff. And I think that would ultimately cheapen everything. Yeah. Think about like 
how we as a culture feel about Freddy Krueger mm-hmm. and how that has basically marred that incredible performance in the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Yeah. Because we know we've seen Freddy on talk shows, mm-hmm. like goofing around and, and having fun. Like that's it's just not what I want no. from a slasher killer. I mean, it does something different. It, it it becomes entry level. It becomes something to hook or claw children into into the genre, which is has its place. But ultimately, I want my slasher killers to be scary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from a marketing perspective, there's probably nothing I admire more than the fact that Freddy Krueger is just mainstream as hell. He's a fucking paedophile who a bunch of yeah. parents burnt to death, who murders, molests, and just torments people in their dreams. And yet, like you said, he's on cereal boxes. <laughs> the fuck? Yeah. Give this fucking marketing team some kind of prize. But I here's the thing about Billy. I don't want to see him. I don't want to know no. anything more. I know too much just from the background stuff that we get about the phone calls, about him and Agnes. And, you know, I, I don't want to know. I don't, I don't want to see any more of him than I already have because it's perfect the way it is. It keeps you wanting more. Yeah. And that's the fucking trick. Uh, I mean, I, I love seeing lots of Jason. Don't get me wrong. I love when the mask comes off every time. Love it. Because there's just a it's a completely different universe and our relationship with jason is so different and billy is such a completely alien uh type of killer to jason in my opinion so i don't i don't want to see any more of his face imagine seeing all of his face it would ruin everything it would absolutely ruin everything Ugh, it would suck which is but who would you have i think that's what happens i think that's in in the first remake in 2006 it's all about the backstory of billy fine which I, I think is fine, yeah. Because you want to do something different to the film that you that you're remaking, make it stand out a little you, bit. And you can't not; you have to address that if you're remaking it. Like basically yeah. mandatory at that point. Uh, so who would I cast as Billy? Yeah, let's say this. We're not going further than Black Christmas, but the original Black Christmas. Let's say there's like a, a quick, um, you know, police car drives past the front of the house, and for a moment we get Christmassy red light just fly through the window and illuminate the whole of his face for a second whose face are you putting on that body well so i i don't know who they who plays the role in the film mm-hmm. obviously we don't see an awful lot of him but i don't know who's, who does that but it really reminds me of uh david hess david who Hemmings. is yeah so he's uh krug in last house on the left okay um I like I like the idea that it's that it's nobody that's in the cast. Mm-hmm. Oh, like the the cheap way of doing it is have it be fucking Nash or yeah Art Hindle or someone like that. Mm-hmm. So it's like oh shit, it's the person. Here's the mystery has been solved. Um, which you know if 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 that's done well or right, then that could be good. Sure. I mean, in, but, in the movie, you know, it's it's somebody who's uncredited it's albert j dunk which is a great name uh and there is there's yeah. no picture there's nothing there um which is again just magnificently mysterious um mm. i really really love nash in this movie just because you've mentioned him i don't want to derail the conversation about who's playing billy but i think nash is so absolutely perfect in this film because you know he's he's kind of like a 
uh, a bit of a Canadian household name from TV, and he's had a long film career, and he's a very good actor. But he's so good at being quietly and completely Canadianly inept in in this movie, and then at the end, he just fucks up so big. You couldn't imagine him fucking up more, could you? The way he just completely throws Jess into a, a panic by lacking yeah. lacking the vocabulary and the just the fucking navigation skills in a conversation to get her out of that house without telling her the killer's in there. He just screams it and then keeps screaming it. He he blows this movie up at the end and the performance is superb for my money. Do you do you not love Nash? No, no, I, I hate Nash. <laughs> I hate Nash for for a million reasons. Okay. One, like he 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 is a terrible, terrible cop. Okay, like he can't figure out the three things that have all happened on the same day <laughs> that involve the same people are somehow connected. He's so checked out, isn't he? It's like it's awful. Like as as a cop, it's bad. As a performance, like it's it's fine. I understand it. I get it. It's yeah. It's played for laughs, and that's fine. But like. There is no motivation for him to be like yelling the killer is in the house, the calls are coming from inside the house. There's no there's no reason for him to be yelling that apart from the fact that like he is soundtracking, he is the the wuzzy synth score for that moment. Right. To in order to to heighten how we feel as the audience, knowing that potentially Billy's gonna run down the stairs and chop off Jess's head. Right. Like for him, on the other end of the phone, there's there's no reason for him to be yelling that. He, I think he just fuck. I mean, he's specifically told not to. First of all, yeah. And we know for a fact that like his boss is going to kill him for this, and yet he does it anyway. That just shows me how dumb he is. I have him yeah. in my mind as like a, a horror movie version of Andy from Twin Peaks. Okay, like an like- R-rated Andy. He's allowed to fuck up more. We're allowed to see him do things that ultimately destroy like he's the kind of guy who would just annihilate a chain of evidence would like give away all the things that the cops were trying to navigate in an interrogation he's bumbling he's useless he's negligent and i fucking love him i think he's great he might be my next halloween costume (laughs) (laughs) why don't we take one last quick break okay come back and wrap up this this pod well, I gotta get. So I gotta go grab a fucking brandy and a mince pie. It's getting to be that time. Will you give it up, man? Nobody's out there. We're alone. Oh no, there's somebody out there. I'm picking up all this crosstalk. So before we sum up, Jamie, just a quick one for you. Uh, in your mind, how does Jess die? How how does Billy ultimately kill Jess? Because she's unconscious, right? Yeah, I like to think that he just strangles her. Yeah. Because it's so... I mean, like to think, maybe not those words, but (laughs) in my head, like, she's just there. There's no resistance. Strangling is, is, I think, the most personal way to kill someone. Mm. Like, you have to stare them in the eye the whole time. I think it might be the worst way to die. It's got to be up there, dude. Having never died, I find it hard to say, but (laughs) it's got to suck. Yeah, I think any any situation where you're dying, where you have to look the person killing you in the eye for, I don't know, at least a minute while they while they choke the life out of you, is the scariest thing in the world. Especially if it's Billy. Yeah. Fuck, dude. Especially if you if you don't know who they are and you don't know what they're thinking, and all you know is that they think you're a cunt mm. and that someone somewhere is called Agnes. <laughs> like, 
That's all you've got to go on. That is not Literally. a satisfying end to what you thought was going to be a long and happy life on Christmas, is it? That's not what you want. That's not what you asked for. That's why Claire's death is so brutal. You know, from the back with the plastic, yeah. no idea what's going on, and then you're just dead. And then you're in a window for the whole fucking movie. How amazingly bleak is that? Sitting in the rocking chair. The the reveal of her in the window. Yeah. And like, she's been there the whole time. If anyone just cared enough to look up, yeah. she'd have, they'd have seen her. It's all about highlighting that isolation and that loneliness and how people don't really care enough to to look around or to look beyond what's happening to them yeah i mean that's chilling how many times have you looked in a window and seen someone sitting there and then walked away and thought of black christmas and just thought fuck that yeah. could be a dead woman <laughs> Jeez, it sticks with you forever anytime i see someone sitting in a window i'm like they're dead with a bag over their head i can't, I can't, I can't help myself where I sit here in my in my sort of home office, yeah, I can see someone's like dining room across there, yeah. And every every single day, almost every time I look out the window, there's a guy like working at his kitchen table yeah. on his laptop, and I'm like, I always see it, and I'm like, oh, he moves. Okay, okay. he's alive. Like, <laughs> yeah. When I was a kid, when I used to do my paper round, I think my uh, my imagination was fucking flying and i was so horny and the combination of these things led me to believe that every single woman on my paper round was going to take me into their house and take my virginity it was gonna happen one of these days like all of them at some point were gonna do it none of them ever did but one of the things i saw when i was a kid on my paper round is there was the so i didn't know this until much later but i thought for maybe two years that there was a guy in his window with a bald head leaning into his window with his forehead against the glass, watching me on the paper round every day. Turns out years later, I realized from gaining a different perspective of this house, that it was the back of a mirror with a photo, with like a picture frame behind it for some reason that made it look like a nose and some sunglasses. And then the curved top <laughs> of the mirror was his head. I was fucking convinced I was being watched the entire time. I wasn't. It was a mirror. Maybe, maybe they just swapped out the mirror and the, the picture frame. Like later on, so so you would maybe think that it was a uh, who the fuck puts a picture frame thing. behind a mirror? What are you doing? <laughs> it's insane. Anyway, I don't know why I needed to tell you that, but yeah, I, I think it's so scary on such a deep level for me. It does so many things so well as a scary film that it does. It's more than Black Christmas is not just for Christmas, in my opinion. It stays with Agreed. you. It, it's such a chiller. Um, yeah. Wow. Holy crap. It just permeates your idea of what's scary and gets right to the core of it and makes it really fucking cold and lonely. Yeah, what's your score? Oh my God. I, this movie for me is 100 dirty phone calls out of 100. It's so good. Um, I love its place in the slasher canon. I love the lore and the background. I adore that it's basically Canadian. It does everything I want a slasher to do perfectly. And and I really admire it. I have a huge amount of respect for this movie. And I like the fan base as well. I think people who like Black Christmas uh, tend to like a lot of stuff that I like. It's one of those mm. sort of top of the... It's the angel on top of the Christmas tree for me. It's such a perfect little movie. Um, it's so painful and so bleak. I could not rate this higher. Big, big yes. Big happy Christmas to Black Christmas. What about you, Jamie? What are your final thoughts and your rating on this 1974 slasher classic? I don't think there's anything that I can say that I haven't already said. It's it's amazing. It's horrible. 
it follows you around like you said it, it sort of climbs on your back and it sort of niggles away at you for days mm. because it's so it's so grotty feeling it's so close it's so claustrophobic mm-hmm. in the way that it that it sort of eats at you throughout the runtime the idea that you don't ever find out who billy is 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 a master stroke as we've said and the idea and an idea that just sort of follows you around because you're like who could it be could it be someone that they know could it be just some rando that's that's found their way into the house and and i i love that i love that that mystery i think in in less capable hands that would feel a bit sort of deus ex machinery a bit like who who cares we we we're introducing some blank slate character mm-hmm quite late in the movie so yeah it doesn't matter but it but it really feels grounded it really feels real and the the idea that he's making these phone calls from mrs matt's bedroom Dude. jerking off and, and looking down the stairs like oh my god you're all you're all there grouped around the phone and he could have his beady little eye on you at that point yeah. oh well, that's horrible still i'm still grossed out like, i'm it was over 24 hours ago that I that I last watched this, yeah. I'm still sort of feeling that icky, skin-crawly sensation, which is the absolute bread and butter of this movie. Yep. There's The performances, they are of their time, yeah. but they do feel real. I like that the characters have something to say and something to do. They're not just sitting around waiting to get killed. Like, just sort of what happens as the slasher movie evolves a little bit. Mm-hmm. We start... we. We, we stop caring a little bit about what characters are doing. There's no danger of that in this. There's, there's, there's real stakes. Yeah. Uh, which I think is really important to how successful this movie ultimately is. Like I say, some, some critics disagree, disagreed with that at the time, but they're wrong. And I think they're all dead now. So that's fine. Uh, also, fuck them. Like they couldn't, yeah. could, these are sympathetic characters that we inhabit throughout the movie. It draws us in. That's why we're so scared, because we are them. Uh, we're not in that cynical phase of slasher trajectory where we want everyone to die. We don't want them to die, and we want no. to We want to, We want want to. to be on their side, and we want them to win. That's a triumph yeah. in a horror movie. <sighs> Holy crap. Could you be more wrong, critics? Shut the fuck up. Yeah. I mean, well... I'm sure they had some valid insights, but I haven't read them, and I never will. And I'm glad that they're all dead. Um, <laughs> Happy Christmas! Like score wise, it's it's maximum unicorn wax, right? It's like full to the hilt, all of the horn gouged into the stomach of a drunk, air quotes, teenage girl. How old is Margot Killer in this movie? Oh my god. I think uh, I th- it's, it's worth shouting out Margot Killer, a tragic end to such a bright starlet podcast. Yeah, tragic end to a bright <laughs> podcast as we on the fly memorialize the great Margot Kidder, 1948 to 2018. R.I.P. baby. The end. <laughs> Happy Christmas. <laughs> um, yeah, for real though. Yeah. What a great movie, and what a great movie for the time of year. It's an iconoclastic blast. Uh, pop it on for your grandma this Christmas and watch her recoil <laughs> yeah. in terror. Pop your, pop your grandma down on the sofa. Yep. Make sure she stays awake. Toothpicks in the eyes if you have to. Yep. Get her to watch this. Then also get, get her to listen to this episode. And then 
take her over to her Spotify account where she can rate it five stars. And then get her handbag and make sure she subscribes to the Patreon, <laughs> top tier only, Grandma, uh, for a special introductory price of whatever you could afford. And then wheel her out into the street and tell her this is a Christmas song and just get her to sing the final transmission theme song and hand out little cards with uh, redscare.net written on it. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then take her her old phone, her, her old Nokia out of her handbag, yep. pop, it, pop, it, pop it over to Instagram, and then follow FT Horror Show from, from Gran's Instagram. Instagram. There you Instagram, go. perfect. And then once she's been through this harrowing gauntlet, just fucking push her out the window. First... First floor, though. Don't go crazy. <laughs> yeah, don't go nuts. We're not mean. So that's that's Black Christmas. Yeah. We hope you have a great holiday season. Thank you for joining us and spending some time with us as we've talked about a movie that we pretty much love. Uh, and we hope yeah. we hope that you get some joy out of it and out of uh, existing at this time of year. It's rough, but we love you. Yeah. If you're not listening to this at Christmas, happy whatever day of the week it is to you. I hope that it brought everything that you wanted and that you know you don't walk under a falling air conditioning unit or something (laughs) kill grandma and don't get squashed by the ac we are nailing this ending jamie holy shit so once again to to all merry christmas happy kwanzaa uh happy hanukkah bright yule happy black christmas yeah hopefully Billy don't get you. <laughs>